Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. You brought a Bible. I'm going to ask you to get it out, however that may be, if you're a pages person, if you have it in a digital version. Uh, and as you do that, we're, we're going to look at several different places, but I'm going to ask you initially to open up to John chapter 3. As you do that, um, there are a few things that I would like to do. Uh, it has been incredible to be together over these last handful of days. Um, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. I know that everyone is aware of that. I don't say that as if it's some mystery or something that's unknown. Um, you know, we, we fast and pray and we lean on the Lord for dreams and we try to receive real assignments from the Lord, a real sense of purpose from heaven uh, driving us and giving us grace to do particular things. Uh, and all of that to say that our being together is not an accident. Uh, it's not just random. Uh, even if you just thought randomly you decided to participate at the last moment, uh, it was not something that was random. Uh, but I believe that the Lord was setting you up uh, even if the convincing, so to speak, took until the last moment in order for it to happen. Um, but as we've gathered, it's been incredible to see what God has done over these days. And we'll be the first to tell you that these days are not an end unto themselves. Our goal is not simply just to gather over a few days and then to reflectively always look back and say, well, we succeeded, we made the gathering happen. Uh, something has to live longer than the meetings themselves. Right? I think we would all agree. Um, we, we live in an entertainment, attraction-driven culture. Um, and meetings and activities and conferences and all of these things, uh, if we're not careful, we can get addicted to the entertainment side of things. And then we constantly need the fix, and so we fix ourselves to attend everything, and nothing's actually living longer than the meetings are lasting, which is why we need more meetings in order to satisfy um, what it is that, that, that we're hungering after. And so we'll be the first to tell you, uh, the, the days themselves, it's extraordinary to see what God does. I pray he wrecks everybody in the building tonight. I, I mean, that's, that's my goal. I have an agenda tonight. I'll just put it right out there up front. I have the same goal every single time, every single place, uh, whether it's a room of seven of us, whether it's an auditorium of 7,000 of us. Uh, I know he's not limited nor confined, uh, and there's enough to go around. So, so I understand that, too. Um, and like Corey said, uh, a real good impartation will give you about two weeks to make the right decisions in order to continue to live out or to walk out the things that God may have worked in in a moment. Um, so, so we understand that the days themselves are valuable, but something has to live longer than the days. Something has to live longer than the meetings. Um, and we pray that God does that tonight. We pray that the Lord does something in our hearts tonight to actually cause us to rise on the other side of these days of gathering. To rise on the other side and to begin to give ourselves to Jesus in obedience, in loving devotion, consistently, not, not wavering, not being blinded or deceived, but to continue to give ourselves to Jesus um, so that we can grow 
in stature, in maturity. Um, and so as we do that, I'd like to take a moment to honor the pastors and the team here from World Impact Ministries for being willing to create a space, link arms, partner with us, believing in what God is doing in this hour and saying yes. Um, are David and Beverly, where are they? There we go. David and Beverly, Rayfeld, pastors, David and Beverly. Come on. Yeah! Woo! We thank God for you. <laughs> uh, at least it's mutual. It, it'd be, it'd be kind of tough if, if it were just one-sided. <laughs> we're really grateful. We love you guys. Thank you. Um, the whole World Impact team, uh, if you've been serving in any way over these past days, behind the scenes, uh, let, just let me say you are visible to the Lord, right? It is incredible, uh, your yes and the grace that has been on you to do what you've been doing. Would you just stand for me for just a moment if you've been serving in any way over these last days, over these last weeks? You are heroes. You are heroes. Thank you for your yes. Thank you for uh, even like, like Stephen getting ordained to the food pantry in Acts. <laughs> hey, for the food pantry in Acts 6, you had to be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Right? Th those are, Jesus has high standards. Thank you for your yes. Um, it, it has been a joy um, to be here and to be with you guys. Um, have you been blessed by those that have been contributing by the ministry of the word? Right, I know Corey Russell. I, I know this language isn't probably popular in our day, but he came and blew up the place. Right, we're going to redeem certain language. He, Billy Humphrey, who was here. And these guys are incredible friends of Jesus. Uh, Scott Volk and Bob Gladstone, who are still here. I will just say personally, it is one of the honors of my life to preach alongside of these guys. These guys are heroes to me. Um, your lives have had an impact, as you know. Uh, I love you. The worship team that has been on hand, John Wilds, Demetrius Stallings, this little firecracker, on fire lover of Jesus. Jerry Lynn, stand for a moment. This is our niece, the 17-year-old powerhouse, intercessor, worship leader, preacher. I was, I was sharing earlier, I remember when she was one years old, running around in the young adult meetings that Anna and I used to lead, uh, running around in a diaper in the young adult meetings. Oh, it's amazing. Where's my wife? 
on the floor? Anna Dow, wherever she may be. And then just so everybody is aware, everybody that has been on the stage that's been a part of the band um, is a leader and a worship leader and worship pastor at different churches all over the southeastern region. Um, really, they just believe in what God is doing. Other than that, they don't have any reason to rally alongside of us. Uh, they are all incredibly gifted, anointed, and leading in different spheres of influence and capacity. Um, we've had Hagen Anderson on the keys. We've had Ethan Byerly on guitar. Mike Bajalia on bass. Nick Edwards in the kit on drums. Uh, and then if, you, if, you're, if you're a part of the Burning Ones squad, right, full-time, part-time, uh, everybody that runs with us in a variety of ways, I, I want you to stand up for just a moment, right? This is the dream team. This is the dream team right here. We are small in number, but mighty in bandwidth. <laughs> People say, how in the world do you get everything done that you get done with the number of people that you have? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Um, we have board members that are here. Scott Volk is on our board of directors. Pastor John Blondo, who is here, is on our board of directors. Other leaders that are in the room, it is incredibly humbling to know um, how many powerful leaders and just precious saints come from different places in order to rally alongside over these days. Jeff and Carol Hubing, who are here, Stanton and Abby Moore. So Jeff and Carol in Chicago, Carol is somewhere, yes. Um, Stanton and Abby Moore from Tifton, Georgia. Keith and Deal, Julie Deal from Tyrone, Pennsylvania. Brian and Mindy Jackson are here. Uh, I'm not trying to leave anybody out, I promise. Um, let me see. Man, I know somebody's going to come looking for me afterwards. It's all right. Really amazing. We are going to get to John chapter 3. It was not just a hoax. We, we are going to go there in just a moment. Um, I would like to take five minutes, maybe. Hagen, where, where is Hagen? Is Hagen still here? Hagen, could you come and just, just play something for me, bro? Um, last night, Scott Volk came and took up an offering and made a partner appeal for us. And it really means the world. And so I, I'm going to take four or five minutes as we continue and just in some way, unapologetically, in some way, unashamedly, tell you that we need your help. Our team has given our lives to the call of God in a full-time way. We have no other jobs. There are no other sources of income. It is Jesus or bust. It is believing that he has spoken to us that this is the avenue that we're supposed to give our lives 
that an excellent yes in stewarding God's grace to us is saying yes in this direction. And we need help. We've given our lives to the Lord, but we know that the way that he provides is by connecting us and making us interdependent. Uh, we're interconnected. We're interdependent. Um, Paul said, you've become a partaker of the grace that's on me through your partnership in the gospel. And I understand that there, there could be a variety of things that he's speaking to, and it's not just primarily financial. Um, but finances are a part of it. Finances are a part of it. And so we've given our lives to the Lord. And I'm just going to ask you up front, John 2, 5, at the wedding of Cana, Mary looks at the disciples and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do that. Because that's where the grace is, that's where the joy is, right? That's where obedience is found. This isn't some sort of sales pitch. I'm not interested in that stuff. Um, I want what Jesus wants. And if the Lord would speak to you tonight to help us, to partner with us, we, we go all over the world. I'm not going to do like the, the prove it to you kind of thing. There's a variety of ways that you can track with us. Um, we do conferences. We do crusades. We have a partnership with the church all over the world. Um, we write worship projects. We host an Israel tour. We're all over media. Uh, millions of people um, all over the world, basically all over the world. We know the percentages. We track the analytics. We want to be faithful with what we're doing. Millions of people track with the media and the things that we do. But it's not even necessarily just the, the, the stuff. Because you can do all the stuff, right? The stuff doesn't equal substance. Right? We're all aware there's tons of people out there doing a bunch of stuff, but no real substance. In some cases, we don't actually have a building permit. We've not actually been authorized. Right? We're just giving it a go. But I'm going to ask you. We know that we know that God has called us and we're given this the rest of our life and we need you we need you so I'm asking you would you pray about helping us there are those that have come and stood in place through partnership material through the partnership material that we have you can give one time or in an ongoing way you can become a monthly partner in the partnership brochure, there's a perforated tear-off page where you can fill out credit card information. It has information on there about how you can give via check. It has information on there if you wanted to take that and pray over it and ask the Lord. If you needed more than four or five minutes to consider something on a consistent basis, praise God. Again, this is zero pressure, but for anybody who may feel that the Lord is speaking to them or leading you. We have partnership material. It explains a little bit more about what we do, how we do it, different ways that you can track with us socially, different ways that you can join with us prayerfully, and then also, yes, the financial component. Um, so tonight, whether it's one time and we give in an offering, again, that's if we feel to do that, or whether it's an ongoing way. Um, you can do that. You can fill out that card. You can tear off that edge. You can drop it off. Uh, if you want to hold on to it and fill it out, you can drop it off at the merch table on your way out tonight. Uh, or we're going to take just a moment. I'm going to ask Hagen to play something after we pass these out. Um, and as he does that, if we want to take a moment and maybe fill it out, we can do that and then drop it off or pass it down to the different ushers that are going to be here. Lord, I'm asking you tonight, 
would you speak to your people? And Lord, if it's you, I pray that we would respond. And just like Mary told the disciples, this is such beautiful wisdom. Whatever he tells you to do. Lord, we know that there's always provision in the invitation. So would you speak to our hearts? We know that there are all kinds of places to give. But Lord, if you're speaking to anyone tonight to give here or to partner with us, would you give grace, Lord? I pray that they would sense the smile of God over the place of their obedience. We love you, Jesus. Amen. If we could just begin to pass that out. And again, we're going to take just a moment in order for that to happen. Uh, if you are going to give by way of check, you can make checks to burning ones. code on the screen. If you want to scan, it will lead you directly to a giving page on our website. You can do that. We have a text to give number. Lord, tonight we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living, that it is active. May it brighten the face of Jesus in our hearts tonight. 
Tonight, for the next few moments, I always say that. Everybody who knows me is like, yeah, right. <laughs> for the next few moments, I would like us to consider if there had to be some sort of title, and I don't necessarily get into titles, but if there had to be some way to describe the subject matter of what it is that I felt like the Lord put on my heart tonight for us, um, it's something that I have been praying out for quite some time now for my own personal life, uh, and then for others that I know, um, and whether or not uh, they've known it or even wanted me to pray this way, I've been praying it anyways. But tonight I, I would like for us to consider the subject of being joyfully conquered. Being joyfully conquered. I believe that the Lord tonight is going to speak to your heart in a profound way for you to see the joy, see the value, and see the purpose in giving the rest of your life in a singular direction. Giving the rest of your life to become a friend of the bridegroom. I know that there's many that want to be famous. There's many that want fortune. But the Lord is looking for friends. The Lord is looking for friends. And I'm just going to issue the end in the beginning. Are you willing to give the rest of your life to becoming a friend of the bridegroom? We're going to read a passage out of John chapter 3. We're going to start with verse number 22. And it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anon and Salim because there was an abundance of water there. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. <laughs> and then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. And all the people are coming to him. And John replied, a person can receive not even one thing unless it's been given to him from heaven. And you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. And he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands near to him and hears his voice rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy is mine, and it has been made full. For he must increase, but I must decrease. We understand that in an overall way, even as we've heard over these last days, that the Father has an eternal purpose. 
and that this eternal purpose is actually governing and guiding all of time and creation itself. That the Lord is superintending the timeline of history and driving it all towards a conclusion or a destination that he himself has said is good. That he himself has said is good. And he is working all things together for those that love him, that are called according to his name, that have aligned their lives with his purpose. He is working all things together for good for these folks who fit in this category. Because what he wants at the end, he is going to have. There is no devil in hell that is going to derail it. There is nothing or no one that can defeat what it is that God has purposed and accomplished through Christ on the cross unto the ultimate reconciliation of all creation. There is nothing that will derail it, nothing that will defeat it, and God is working and working all things for good. And what he wants at the end, he is going to have. He is going to have. And we know that one of the things that the Father longs and longs for at the end, at the destination, at the conclusion of this age, at the end of the age, when he releases his Son, to come riding upon the clouds. When the trumpet sounds and the clouds split and Jesus comes, we know that one of the things that he wants is a people that have been readied, a bride that has been prepared from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. A people that have been fashioned, that Ephesians 5.27, no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish. That Revelation 19.7, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the bride has made herself ready. We understand that the Father is still longing to present the bride that his Son deserves and desires. That marriage supper of the Lamb. We're leaning in towards a wedding day where Jesus will return. Step foot back on the earth and rule the nations from Jerusalem as he establishes his throne. But not alone but alongside of a people. And the scriptures give beautiful insight into and unto God's desires. Into and unto God's desires. It is no mystery. It's no mystery. What he wants, he's revealed it from the very beginning and it's consistent throughout, leaning in towards the end. We will not be surprised when all of time wraps up. There's not going to be any one of us that's like, wow, well, I, I never saw that coming. Like, man, well, where did that come from? Like, like man, that ingredient, like, like you never, like, well, what is going on? No, we understand we understand in Genesis 2 that God desires to ready a bride for the man, for the son of man. That in a deep sleep, he pierces his side, pulls out a rib, forms for him the bride that he deserves, his companion, his suitable helper. He raises him back up and brings the day of presentation. Can you see Jesus? We get glimpses all throughout 
We get glimpses and pictures and prototypes of things to come. All throughout, God is consistent. He is faithful to his desires. In Genesis 4, we have the righteous shepherd who brings the unblemished offering to the Father. And because of the hostility in the heart of his brother, he's murdered for his unblemished offering. The righteous shepherd who lays down his life because of his perfect offering. Can you see Jesus? In Genesis 6, we find Noah who has that consistent, long obedience in one direction and who builds an ark for the Lord. A man who has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying in a dark and corrupt generation. And that long obedience in a single direction who builds an ark and becomes a deliverer from the flood of corruption on the outside. Can you see the Lord who would be the one that would deliver through a baptism, a flood, but not from the corruption on the inside? Or from the corruption on the outside, but from the corruption on the inside? We get it in the life of Joseph, who's the favored son. And his brothers hate him because of it. And they reject him. And he's pushed out. And he's pushed into a pit and sold off into slavery. And through slavery, there's these accusations that come against him, though he's perfect in every way, and the Lord is with him. And through false accusation, he ends up in a prison. And though he's in the prison in the bottom of the bottom in a Gentile world in Egypt, it says that in a moment in Genesis 41, 14, that he rises out of the prison. He rises out of the bottom of the bottom, and he finds himself at the right hand, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And it says that when there's famine in the land, that it's actually Joseph that calls for his brothers to come to Egypt to find nourishment through a Gentile provision. And it says that the first time that they come, they don't recognize him. And it says that he weeps over them and them not being able to see him rightly, for he has not yet unveiled himself. But the second time that they come, we find that he has been exalted in a Gentile land and that he discloses or unveils himself to his brothers. The provision that has come through Egypt in order to feed them in a time of famine. And Joseph looks at his brothers in their second time, now having an opportunity to look upon him. Zechariah 12 says that God will pour out grace in those last days so that they will look upon the one that they have pierced and they will weep over him. And Joseph says to them in that second appearing, what you tried to kill me with, this epic Genesis 50, 20 verse, what you tried to kill me with, the Lord is using for the saving of many lives. 
We have to see that God's desires are revealed throughout the word. We get certain prototypes like Daniel in the book of Daniel. Daniel is not just a person. He's not just a prophet. Daniel is a prototype of a people. He is a prophetic picture of a people. And not just any people, but the church at the end of the age. Daniel gives us a glimpse of the church at the end of the age living under the system of Babylon. We realize in Revelation that the system of Babylon is at war with God's desires throughout the nations. And the system of Babylon that will overtake the globe when the nations begin to rage. That the system of Babylon, that even at the end of the age, that God will have a people moving and living by signs, wonders, miracles, power and provision and angelic visitation and dreams and prophecy, wisdom the unpacking of mysteries and riddles. God is revealing the things that are to come. And Daniel gives us a glimpse because Daniel is a prototype. We should see something. We should be able to glean something. We should be encouraged and find strength. And as we look at the life of John, we must also recognize that John is a prototype. That John is not just a weirdo out in the middle of the wilderness who has a different wardrobe and a strange diet. But that John is a prototype because God is consistent. He has a way about him. And if the Lord raised up a type of person that would set the stage and usher in the first great unveiling of his son, then I believe with all of my heart that there are things to glean from the life of John that are going to give us insight and provide for us the necessary frame to understand by the prototype that John is that it's not just going to be an individual person, but that there is a type of people that God is going to raise up at the end of the age who will give their lives to set the stage for the next great appearing or unveiling of his son that is coming to the earth. And John's life provides for us what it is that we need to see. John's life gives us insight. And there are some incredibly practical things that we're going to look at from the life of John that are really going to help to understand the direction or the lane that God is desiring for us to find joy and fulfillment and value and satisfaction in as we are giving him the yes that he not only desires, but the yes that he deserves. And so I'd like to take a look at the life of John. And in looking at John's life, Maybe even also share some things from my own journey that have been very difficult at times to try and walk out what John's life is actually communicating to us. There are four things that I would like to speak about from John's life. This is not even normally how I go about it. But as I was praying before the meeting, I felt like 
The Lord dropped it in my heart. And so if you're a note taker or if you're taking notes, there are four things that I would like to glean out of John's life. John had a delight. John had a diet. John had disciples. And John had a different understanding of destiny. John had a delight. He determined that Jesus was enough. This is something you can't fake. It's not something you can fake. John decided that Jesus was enough. That he was worth walking away from all of the privileges, all of the entitlements. Even as we heard earlier, that Moses chose not to enjoy the leverages and the entitlements of Pharaoh's house and the system and the privileges of Egypt, but he chose. There was a resolve. There was a desire. There was an intentional choice that was made. There was something in his heart that understood the terms, that counted the cost, looked at the consequences of two different paths, and still yet determined this way is worth it. And John decided, you have to understand, John is the son of Zechariah. John understands his miraculous birth. He understands his miraculous call. He understands that there's angelic visitation in order to bring the announcement of John's life into the earth. You have to consider that his parents probably shared that with him a time or two. That he was aware of the extraordinary circumstances that brought him into the earth by God's desires. That there was extraordinary circumstances that released his sense of purpose and call and destiny. John knew that his life was not an accident, and so he was not going to live it accidentally. He wasn't just going to think that he would bump into God's will somewhere along the way. But in the beginning, we learned that John spent decades out in the middle of nowhere. He spent decades in the wilderness. He spent decades in obscurity. He spent decades, I'm sure, initially and then in an ongoing way, because we act like we graduate from it all together. But I'm sure that he spent much time wrestling with the tension of, is this actually the way that I'm supposed to be walking this out? Am I certain that the way that I am giving myself to is actually the way that is going to best align me with my destiny? I am sure, because John is a man, I'm sure that at times, at the consideration of all of the privileges that he would have had in the line of the priesthood, all of the entitlements, whether they be just platform-oriented positionally, whether they be by titles and different luxuries, whether they be by education, whether they be by whatever, all of the different reasons might have abounded in his heart. I know that I know because he's a man, and it's human nature. But John faithfully 
gave himself to ordinary for decades. And I will suggest to you that it is impossible. It is impossible to be faithful in ordinary unless Jesus has become your supreme satisfaction. John understood that there was a lot of leverage at his disposal. But what he also equally and more powerfully understood is the way that God had revealed himself to him. And had that, or how that had so deeply impacted his heart and his life. He said, if the wilderness is where God is, then that's where I want to be. I would rather be in the middle of nowhere with God then be right smack dab in the middle of what everyone else calls somewhere, knowing that I'm fueling it by my own desire, that I'm keeping it alive through my own ambition, that it's my networking, it's my social skills, it's all of my behind-the-scenes maneuvering and massaging that is keeping this thing afloat. John said, if I have the choice, I would rather be where God is because at the end of the day, it is him that has satisfied my heart. And I promise you, there's no way that you can fake this. Not when opportunities abound, not when doors are opening, not when the phone is ringing, not when names are calling, not when privileges are abounding, not when entitlements seem to be at your grasp. There's just no way that you can fake this. In John 6, 15, it says, And when he understood that the people wanted to make him king by force, he withdrew from them to a solitary place to go be with the Father. Not every door that opens is God. Not every title that comes your way is supposed to be the right time. Jesus understood that it didn't matter if they said he was king because his father had already said that he was king and it was the voice of his father that mattered most to him. And if we don't understand who we are, whose we are, and what we're about, then every door that opens, depending on if it seems to be connected to the direction or the sense of destiny that our hearts really long for, we'll go running through doors that have been opened to test us and reveal us rather than aligning us with the moment or the season of God's provision for us. But John had a delight. His life had been joyfully conquered. He says, my joy has been found in standing near the bridegroom and hearing and listening to and obeying his voice. He says, this is what my life is about. He says, I understand. Like this delight has now given me a sense of definition. This delight has now given me a sense of direction. This delight has actually conquered every other desire that at one point in my life I thought I had. But then I saw him. Man, and, and then he actually revealed himself to me and he touched me. And he didn't just touch me, but he satisfied me so, so deeply. And when he touched me and how he satisfied me, it began to unravel and deconstruct and abolish all of the other influence and the powers that were at work on the inside that were trying to drive me according to a certain sway or a certain current because there is a pattern to this world and this culture. 
And there is a particular way or sway that the world is longing to influence you in. 1 John 5, 19, John says, we know the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Ephesians 2, Paul says, we know that at one point we all were bound by the powers of the air. That we were given over to the tyranny of corruption. Through self-indulgence, we were given over to the lustful desires of our flesh and of our mind. We understand, Paul says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world. He's talking to believers, by the way. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. So that... You can now actually have your eyes opened to be able to spiritually discern what God's will is. Those things that are good and pleasing and perfect to God. John's delight gave him definition. He knew who he was. He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight paths for the Lord. He's referencing Isaiah 40. There are a few places where we get insight about John's life. In John 1, John 3, Mark 1, Matthew 9, Matthew 11. We're going to look at all of these places for a variety of things. But John's delight gave him the definition of who he was. But his delight was in Jesus. And when your delight ultimately is in Jesus, it frees you from the current of the world, from the influence and the conditioning of this age, from the discipleship agenda of the wicked one in order to pattern you after his way or current or sway that he is swirling through the wielding of influence into the hearts and minds of men and women on the ground. When your delight ultimately and supremely is in Jesus and you've been born again and now the power of God's spirit is at work on the inside, we have the privilege to break the bondage of the sway of the wicked one where we can now be open to the influence of God's desires by his spirit and really discern the differences. And so John gave himself to this thing. And he went out into ordinary. And we need a profound rediscovery of the value of ordinary. Some of us live with so much shame over the condition of our day-to-day life. Because we're comparing it to others where we get snapshots or highlights We're comparing it to others that are posting pictures that are filtered. And and we're we're, we're comparing it to others and the moments that they're allowing us to, uh, that are even sometimes manufactured through a variety of motivations. Um, we're, We're comparing our lives to others and we feel that significance, even according to the conditioning of this age, that significance is found in things that the world says is extraordinary. And we need a profound rediscovery of extraordinary in ordinary. Because until we actually believe that God has fully invested himself into the little, unknown, obscure 
broken, wilderness-type life that I've been called to. And I'm not saying that you got to be a weirdo up on a mountaintop or out in the middle of a desert and you got to shack up somewhere and all that kinds of stuff. I'm talking about the wilderness as a way of life and not necessarily a geographical place. But the wilderness as a way of life. John gave himself fully to ordinary Trusting a God that was extraordinary, that even himself fully invested himself into what we think is ordinary. For God humbled himself and became one of the creatures that he made. And it should be puzzling to you that for almost 30 years, we just get little glimpses. For almost 30 years, you don't hear about who taught Jesus to walk. Any parents? Right? You understand when they start crawling, like, like you, you, your time is short. Because once they get fully mobile, it is on and popping. We don't hear much about who taught Jesus to walk. We don't hear much about who taught him how to talk. This is God we're talking about. Who has invested himself into the process. God did not come and eclipse the processes that we consider to be ordinary. But he fully invested himself into places and processes that most of us are trying to escape because our discipleship and our conditioning is coming from the world rather than the influence of the Spirit. And we're looking for these big-time, mountaintop, extraordinary platform, highlight reel-type moments. Because we don't honestly believe that God has fully invested himself into what we consider to be normal, routine, mundane, ordinary, insignificant, underground, behind the scenes, out of the eye, no applause. But somebody had to teach Jesus how to walk. Somebody had to teach him how to talk. Somebody had to deal with him as a toddler. When it was me, 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 my, my, my. But then you get this beautiful glimpse. Didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? And then back to ordinary. You see, some of us need a rediscovery of God's delight in ordinary. So that we can begin to live with real purpose. So that we can begin to live with real freedom. So that we're constantly not living in the tension and under the imaginary weight of comparison. That our lives are being belittled. That our purpose is being diminished. That God's eyes are not on us because our life doesn't seem to match up to or compete with. Or we need to stop looking at others and their lane and the things that we're doing. Because one of the things that we get to do is we get to see everybody moving on the outside. But the one thing that we don't get to all Always understand is what's moving them on the inside. And not everybody is always moving in obedience. John's disciples say to him, hey bro, like this Jesus guy, he's right up, right up the road here. He's, he's setting up shop. It, it'd be like the church a mile away. Be like the church a mile away with all the new 
trendy, hype, relevant stuff. And John's disciples come to John and they say, bro, listen, we got to do something about this, man. Like it's becoming a problem. But why, why do we even joke that way? Because they say people are leaving and they're actually going to join him there. Like, like John, you got to understand, bro, like we've been with you for a while. We've been trying to build this thing. Like we've given ourselves to building this brand. And it's not looking good now that Jesus is right up the road. He's right up on the other side of the river and people are leaving. Like, like he's actually, whether he's doing it or whether others are doing it, they're leaving us and they're going to him. It, it would sound like, hey, bro, like the meetings are not as big as they used to be. Like, hey, bro, listen, like we're losing followers. Like, what are we doing? Like, the subscribers are decreasing rather than increasing. Like, we're not getting as many likes on the things that we're posting anymore. Like, people are liking Jesus' stuff, and they stopped liking our stuff. Do you see how really absurd this sounds? But they come to him, and they're like, hey, bro, listen, like, whatever we've been doing, it's not really working anymore. People are leaving us for Jesus. And what they're actually saying is John, do something. Do something. We're all going to face do something about it in our life. We're all going to face do something about it. Where that intersection happens, where along the journey it takes place, I promise you, it is inevitable. You are going to cross paths with do something about it. What you seem to be doing is no longer progressing. It's no longer advancing. It no longer seems to be increasing according to the opinions or the applause or the certain conclusions that others that have rallied around you. But what I also understand is that there are particular moments where we're tested, where the world rallies around us and they laugh at us and they tell us we're failing and they tell us that we're falling and they tell us that we're decreasing and they say that God can't be with you because of the things that are happening to you. But had the rulers of the age known what they were doing when they nailed Jesus to that cross, thinking that they were winning, thinking that they were mocking, thinking that they were advancing. Had they understood what God was actually doing? And there's going to be times for all of us where the world rallies around and they say the results aren't what they should be. The numbers aren't lining up the way they should be. Do something about it. And John says, man, uh, I've, I've learned by now, a man can only receive what's given him from heaven. So John lets us know that fruit is not the same thing as results. Right? We can create results, even as it's been shared. We can create results. We can create impact. We can do our thing. We, we can invest into different efforts and make things happen. But John's conclusion is what is actually worth it to make happen if it's not God himself that is making it happen. Because at the end of the day, we are going to be rewarded for things that God made happen, that we partnered with God in order to see happen. And we may come with a lot of stuff that we did, but Jesus even told them in Matthew 7, oh yeah, there was a lot of you that had a lot of stuff going on, but I never knew you. 
but I, I never knew you. And John gave himself to ordinary because he believed that God was fully invested and fully interested in ordinary. That God is fully invested and he's fully interested in you giving your life in a very big time way to things that other people think are very small. And it's time to give our life and the investment of our life to very small things in a very big time way. Raising kids and changing diapers. Doing the dishes and cooking meals. Working our job and being faithful with the responsibility that's been put in front of us day by day. Loving the people, even the small handful of people that we may be in relationship with. That we feel that God has covenantally connected our lives to. And believing that we are doing all things as unto the Lord. And that there are all things that are unto the Lord. And not just some big things that the world thinks is extraordinary. It's time to rediscover the joy of giving our lives in ordinary places in a big time way as unto the Lord. And this was John's life. I'm going to give everything I have and invest it out here in the middle of nowhere. And invest it ministering to God in the middle of the wilderness. I understand that there's privileges in the temple. I understand that there's privileges according to the line uh, of the priests and all of these things and entitlements. But this is where the voice drove me. And John trusted that he was in the right place that was ultimately one day going to connect him to his purpose. But do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jason Upton said something this morning that destroyed my life. He said, when you love who you are, you'll always love where you are. John understood that if he gave everything in an ordinary place, that if he gave everything ministering to God in what the rest of the world counted insignificant, in what the rest of the world didn't want to give their attention to, you see, you, ha you have to see the contrast. John understood where the current should have been driving him. But he came out of the sway by the influence of God's pull on the inside to come out to what was opposite, what was ordinary, what seemed insignificant, what was little, what was small, what was nowhere, what no one actually cared about, no one else was interested in. And John said, this is exactly the place where God has asked me to invest everything I have, believing that this is the place where I'm going to engage the purpose that God has put on my life. Um, but if you don't actually believe, that ordinary is the place where God is processing you to one day connect you with whatever that may be. John understood a sense of destiny on his life. 
But he wasn't necessarily trying to manufacture that in his own strength. He didn't want something that everyone else said looked enough like what God said in order for him to be satisfied with it. But John said, I'm going to keep investing in nowhere and what everyone else says is no thing until God comes to get me in order to do whatever it is that he himself has said about me. Um, because if God won't do it, then we should be willing to do without it. And John not only had a delight, but he also had a weird diet. Mark 1 tells us that he was covered with camel's hair and he ate bugs and honey. No, that wasn't like a, a stutter to say Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Some of you that are younger don't even know who Bugs Bunny is. <laughs> John had a different diet. Daniel 1.8 says that Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself with the delicacies of the king's table. He understood that one of the battlefields in Babylon was the table and that he couldn't be feasting on what all the rest of the culture was feasting on, that he couldn't be feeding himself on the delight of the culture and the system that he was under. He understood that he had to have a different diet if he was going to be able to discern what it was that God was doing, even while he was planted in what looked like a hostile or foreign territory. And it says that John had a different diet. Jesus says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? He didn't say who, he said what. He said, what did you go out to see? Because he understood that John, even through his own disclosure, was more than a prophet. That he was more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet. Jesus says he's more than a prophet. He says he's a messenger. He's one making a way. Even as we suggested, he's a prototype of a type of people that God is going to raise up at the end of the age. And Jesus said that he came with fasting and prayer. Um, I would suggest that these are days to fast and pray in order to free our hearts from the battlefield in our culture. Because the conditioning of our culture and what our culture is consistently feeding on is not the diet that is going to make us discerning of God's desires, what it is that he is doing. And right now, some of us have been given over to so many other things. And by way of other things, I mean fear and anxiety and misunderstanding and depression and even torment and at times suicidal thoughts at the perception of the future because we've been feasting on what the culture has been feeding. And what we need to understand is that there's an agenda. There's an agenda behind what the culture is feeding. In Daniel 3, it says that Nebuchadnezzar erected an image of himself, and there was the accompaniment of a sound. And we're not going to dive too deep into the demonic agenda with images and sounds. 
But there was a demonic agenda being driven into culture. And it was an agenda because it was not for entertainment or enjoyment purposes alone. There was an agenda. Nebuchadnezzar said, when you see it and when you hear it, bow. The agenda was ultimately to normalize bowing in the culture. And the only way that Daniel and his small handful of covenant guys were able to discern that bowing was not God's will. They had the ability through the renewing of their minds to see and perceive and discern and to know that there was an agenda being driven. That there was an attempt to normalize certain things in culture. And though they may be normal in culture, We have to understand what is normal in kingdom. And three guys who had a different diet said, we're not going to bow. When you see it, when you hear it. No, we understand the consequences. We have to be very careful of what we're seeing and hearing in these days. We have to be very careful. Uh, Let let, let me just go ahead and and tell you, you can't constantly condition your inner man with things that are normalizing violence and degrading women and sexualization of culture and violence and hatred and murder and pornography and all of these types of things. You can't consistently feed yourself these things and then not think that at some point the discipleship agenda and the conditioning of the sway or the current of the world system around us is not going to accomplish its goal. Again, Paul is talking to believers and says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. But John had a different diet. It's time for some of us to get a different diet. It's time for some of us to step away from the movies, to step away from the music, to step away from the news, to step away from the social media outlets, to step away from all the underground conspiracy groups. It's time for some of us to step away from all of the deep-seated political affiliations that are consistently driving us into bitterness and hostility and hatred for our brother. It's time for some of us to step away and to get a different diet so that we can actually discern what it is that God is doing in the day that we are responsible for. And John had a different diet. He was dressed different. He didn't have the same look and feel and feed as the rest of the culture around him. But he understood that he had real power in order to be consistent. Jesus said, there has not been a man born of the womb of a woman greater than John. We need to call great the things that Jesus calls great. We need a radical reorientation of our value system to the values of Jesus. If Jesus says that John is great, then there are certain things that if we aspire unto greatness, desire in itself is not wrong. Expectation in itself is not wrong. I would say that entitlement is expectation that has experienced corruption. And we need a radical reorientation of our values, because most of us are being discipled 
by worldly values and then trying to slap a Jesus bumper sticker on it. Demanding that God fulfill our goals, our plans. Demanding and at times holding hostage our affection and our obedience. Demanding a ransom of destiny in order to be faithful to God. John 1 says, there came a man sent from God. His name was John. And he himself was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. He came to be a witness about the light. Some of us need to hear this. John 1 says, there came a man sent from God. And he himself was not the light. You are not the light. Don't just casually shake that off and amen me as if we're going to move on super quick. You yourself are not the light. You are not the big deal. You are not the main attraction. You are not the featured event. You are not the highlight reel. There came a man sent from John or sent from God whose name was John. And he himself was not the light. Some of us actually believe that Jesus needs us to be famous. Some of us are squirming, man, like. And though you say you don't believe that, everything about the way you've set your life up, everything about the way that you are investing and the efforts that you are distributing says otherwise. John understood that there was one who actually was the light. John understood that there was one who was actually the big deal. John understood that there was one that was really the main attraction. And John understood that he was giving his life in order to set the stage for the father to reveal his son. He was giving his life to set the stage for the father to reveal his son. And John was okay that he did not get to share the stage with Jesus. Oh, my. John didn't get invited to be a part of Jesus' ministry team. Though they were alive at the same time. Jesus chose other guys. But John had given his life into ordinary. John had given everything that he had out in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere. John was faithful, ministering to God day and night, night and day. I'm, I'm including that. But John was faithful, ministering to God. And now here comes Jesus. What his whole life has been set up for. And man, you, do, you, don't, you don't, bro, you don't even like, you don't even call there's no indication that outside of the initial encounter at birth, right, John is baptized in the Holy Ghost while he is in the womb. John is baptized with the Spirit and the cross has not happened. The resurrection has not happened. The ascension has not happened. John is 
filled with the Spirit. But from that initial encounter leading up unto the Jordan, he says, God spoke to me. And he said, the one that you see the dove descend upon, he is the one. He says, a voice spoke to me and told me out in the wilderness that if I would start baptizing, that through me baptizing and giving my life in obedience to the activity of baptizing, that Jesus would then be revealed. But bro, like you don't even call. Like, bro, like you, you, got, you got 12 invites and I, I mean, I don't even make one. Like, you got 12 dudes rolling with you, and I'm not even, like, one of your guys? Like, do you know who I am? Bro, like, do you know what I've been doing? Do you know the resume that I've been developing? Like, I've been waiting for this. Like, I've readied my whole life for this season right now. You think I've been doing everything that I've been doing so that these dots wouldn't actually get connected whenever the opportunity was presented or the door was going to swing open? Like, Jesus, come on, bro. Like, how can we make this happen? And Jesus calls 12 other guys. You know, it's always been interesting to me. David gets anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. Right? We're, we're familiar with the story. David's father, his brothers, they all don't think that he's important enough, ready enough, qualified enough in order to be included in the moment that's happening. I mean, Samuel's come. Man, we're, we're anointing the next leader, the next king. They're like, man, well, you can't possibly be talking about David, which is why we didn't include him. We don't even feel like, man, like he's just not the one. He doesn't have the capacity. Um, and so they don't invite him in. But even though they don't invite him in, God knows exactly where he is. Even though they don't think he's qualified, God has been qualifying him for quite some time. David's been out in ordinary. He's been out in the sheep field, as we heard earlier. He's been doing what is the lowest of the low, what is the insignificant of insignificant. He's been giving himself in ordinary, and God is developing something extraordinary in what everyone else says is ordinary. And so they, they call him in, and he comes in. And Samuel says, man, this is who we've been waiting for, right? God speaks to Samuel, no, 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 right? right? Like seven no's, okay, well, there's got to be somebody else. And David comes in and he's like, okay, everybody rise. This is who we've been waiting on. And it says that he tips the horn of oil. And he prophesies over David things that were on God's heart pertaining to the life of David. Crazy, wild, amazing moment. But then it says that, David goes back out to the sheep field, and it says that Samuel goes his way. And, and I've always wondered, I've always considered why it was unnecessary for David and Samuel to be buddies. There was nothing about David's destiny that was requiring him to chase Samuel around everywhere that he went. The one who prophesied over the life of David was not now also a part of the process of how God would develop David. 
But David, I'm sure, at times wrestled with, like, man, am I supposed to be with this guy? Like, man, like, God used this guy to speak into my life. Like, man, like, God created this powerful intersection. Like, what am I supposed to do about this? But David didn't pack his bags and start attending all of Samuel's meetings in order to try to get Samuel to do something else for him in order to develop the destiny that God had spoken over him. But David returned to a place of ordinary with an extraordinary promise and trusted God's process that he was invested and interested in what everyone else said was nothing and I'm sure that John was mad or or, uh, not really I don't want to say that but I'm sure that John considered at times I'm not even included I'm, I'm not even included And have you ever been there? I've served faithful and ordinary, and opportunities arise, doors open, people start coming around, groups start getting formed, and I'm not not included. Lord, is it worth it? There are so many things along the way that are going to test the authenticity of our obedience. Because if along the way there is any other thing that has incentivized us all along, the moment that we have the opportunity to apprehend said incentive (laughs) may be the very moment that disrupts the process that God has had at work all along. Because John was a man that understood the difference between ambition and assignment. John said, I am a voice, again, quoting Isaiah 40, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He knew his lane. He knew his assignment. He recognized the call. He knew what he was about. Knowing what you're about is amazing because then you should at least be able to understand what you're not about. When you know your lane, you should know where to run and to understand your lane. And there shouldn't be this tension or this comparison and competition with other lanes. John was like, I know my call. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness and out of this type of life John had disciples we get that in Matthew 9 the disciples of John come to Jesus and they want to know why they and the Pharisees fast and Jesus and his little get-along gang are not fasting we've been watching and our evaluation has now led us to the point where we realize we fast and you don't. (laughs) We understand in John 3 that he has disciples. The idea is that John was not out in ordinary all alone, but that he had given himself to a small group of people. And he had given himself in a faithful way John had disciples. There were people that he was pouring his life into. He wasn't just sitting around, shielding off everyone else and every other thing, waiting for the right moment 
or trying to manipulate circumstances in order for a particular happening. John was not wasting his time. He was investing into ordinary. And part of investing into ordinary was faithfully giving himself to a small group of people. He was doing life with a small group of people. He was giving himself to the process of day-by-day life. Man, some of us need what David writes, return to me the joy of my salvation. Those of us who don't have real joy because we're discouraged because of what our day-to-day life actually looks like. And we don't feel like we're connected to the right people that are going to connect us to our destiny. And so we're constantly moving and scrambling and massaging and manipulating and trying to form different works or relationships or conversations in order to make the right thing happen. Because we always believe that we're not in the right place for God to process our purpose. But John understood, I'm in the right place and I'm surrounded by the right people. Why? Because this is where God said to be. We don't get the disciples' names. He wasn't running with all the big name folks in his day. He had come out of that sway. He wasn't pulled. He was out in the middle of nowhere, giving himself in an extraordinary way. And part of that was through the raising up of disciples. Who are you giving your life to that right now is surrounding you day to day in what everyone else says is ordinary? Who are you giving yourself to? Who is what God is doing in you and the grace that he has put on you? Who is it affecting? Who are you influencing? Whose life are you covenantally connected to as a spiritual family to walk out what everyone else says doesn't actually matter? But what I've learned over time is that God tests us in things that everyone else says doesn't actually matter. God tests us behind the scenes with no lights, camera action, with things things that are ordinary, with things that are routine, with things that are mundane, because those of us that are just sitting around itching and scratching, waiting for the right extraordinary opportunity, and so we're resisting giving ourselves to everyone that looks ordinary, because according to our internal value system, we think we know what extraordinary actually looks like. <laughs> well, you're not powerful enough for me to invite you over for dinner. Well, you don't have enough Facebook followers or enough Instagram friends uh, in order for me to post pictures with you, right? But, but I'm going to post selfies with people that I want everyone else to know that they think is important so that they can now think that I'm important. And so I'm going to make sure that I post all of those pictures because you're too ordinary for everyone else because everyone else has an assumption of what extraordinary looks like. We need a reconfiguration of how we actually set our life up and what we actually give it to. Because Jesus said there has not been a man that was greater than John. And if John is great, then I want to know what is it about John that Jesus thinks is great. And if Jesus thinks it's great, then I want to give myself to the things that Jesus thinks is great. 
even if it's controversial, even if it's countercultural, even if it brings me out of the current, even if it's opposite of the sway and the applause and what everyone else is doing as a buzz and all of the enhancement and the addiction to certain things or a certain appreciation for things in life. I want to know, Jesus, what do you think is great? And John gave himself to a small group of guys. And he gave himself faithfully, not because he was trying to leverage those relationships unto the opportunities that he really wanted. That's disgusting. Right? And, and it actually comes across when you're being used, when people are working, when they're interacting with you, but it's with agenda, it's with motive. They're looking at you, but they're looking through you to the connections or the resources or the leverages or the things that you may be able to provide or the things that you might bring to the table or the benefits, supposedly, of said relationship. And John gave his life faithfully to a small group of folks. Man, I'm telling you, give your life to a small group of people and give it faithfully. And give them everything you have. And don't hold back. And know that you're in the right place. And know that you're surrounded by the right folks. Why? Because that's where you are. That, that, that's where you are. And those are the people that you're surrounded by. And understand that God does great things through processes that everyone else considers not to be great. I'm trying to see what time it is. And the last one was John had a different sense of destiny. John said, this is where my joy is found. I want to be near the bridegroom. I want to be sensitive to his voice. I want to listen and I want to obey, even as we heard this morning. I want to be near the bridegroom proximity. I want to be sensitive to his voice. I want to listen and I want to obey. Because this is where my joy is found. And I have these things and my joy has been made full. John understood that there was only one person that could sign off on his destiny. There was only one voice at the end of all things that was actually going to matter. There's one voice consistently throughout your life and then absolutely at the end of your life that is going to matter. There is one face, there is one set of eyes, there is one voice, there is one man that we are going to stand before whose opinion of how we actually lived our life, that opinion of what we invested in, what we were about, the yes that we gave, there is one opinion at the end of our life that is actually going to matter, and it is Jesus's. And though we know this, at times we are pulled in so many different directions 
to satisfy so many different opinions and voices and influences. But John had a different idea of what destiny was all about because he understood that God was not only the author, but that he was also the finisher. And there comes a moment in John's life. We we read it in the passage that we opened with. It said, for John had not yet been put in prison. There comes a moment where John ends up in prison. Yeah, now we have to consider, right, right? This is almost, I mean, some believe three decades, right? He's around the same age as Jesus, obviously. Mary comes to see Elizabeth, right? The greeting, John is in the womb, right? She's six months ahead. So, so they're, they're similar in age range. Decades of faithfulness to God. To then rise... And, and most believe, whether six months to 18 months of visible public ministry, right? Mark 1.4, and John appeared in the wilderness. What was always visible to God, God made visible to men in the season where God was ready to do it, right? Our issue is we have so many outlets for visibility that at times are not authorized by God himself. And we're being fueled by other opinions and influences and agendas, and everybody wants to be seen, everybody wants to be heard, everybody considers themselves an authority, and everybody considers themselves an influence, depending on how many followers you have, how many subscribers, how many likes, and so on and so on. John was not jockeying for visibility out in the middle of his ordinary. But John was thriving in ordinary, and when visibility was ready for John's life, he didn't have to go looking for it. God made John visible and drew the region to where John was because what God had always seen, he was now ready for people to see. Because there was no disconnect. It was real when no one else was around, and it was as real when everyone else was around. The issue we have is when we run off with a word and we haven't yet been processed, so we're not actually real. We don't have real substance, real stature, real guts, real transformation. We applaud gifting. God applauds transformation. And John appeared in the wilderness. And some believe, most believe, whether six to 18 months. My whole life for six to 18 months? And six to 18 months to then, most believe, to spend two years sitting in a jail cell. John's whole life of faithfulness set him up to go to prison. This is where destiny supposedly is going to land. Blessed is he who is not offended on account of me. And they come back to tell John, imagine how devastating these words would be for you or I as we were sitting in a jail cell somewhere, knowing that we were just waiting to be executed. Don't be offended. Like, I'm not supposed to be mad. Like, this is supposed to be okay. Like, 
you're out there doing all of that for everybody else. I'm supposed to be your guy. I gave my life in decades of obedience. I willingly and joyfully refused all of the other rewards of this life because of how my satisfaction was found in knowing you and obeying your voice. I willingly and joyfully, by the grace that you gave me, resisted, refused, denied all of the rewards for this life. And this is where it all lands? But you see, I understand it's easy to read it that way. But I believe that John understood where his ultimate reward was coming from. I understood, or I believe that John understood, that he knew that his faithfulness was to God. And that God was going to be the one that would determine his reward. Daniel 12, 13 closes out the book of Daniel. And it's a message that Daniel actually receives in a vision that Gabriel is giving him insight on. And the closing verse of the book of Daniel. Now this is the message that Gabriel gives him. Daniel, be faithful to the end. For you're going to die. Well, man. That's not necessarily the the encouraging prophetic word that I was looking for. Daniel, be faithful to the end. Because you're going to die. But don't worry. God will be faithful. He will raise you from the dead at the end of the age. And you will enter into your reward. I believe that John knew where the ultimate sense of reward was coming from. That there was a lot of ways that he could spin his wheels There was a lot of ways that through self-promotion and self-preservation, he could make a lot of things happen, right? But Jesus speaks to this kind of life in Matthew 16. He says, those of you that are trying to protect your life, you're ultimately going to be the ones that end up losing your life. But anybody who's willing to lose their life for my sake and the gospel is actually going to find their life. And then he says, for the Son of Man will come at the end of the age. And he will come with his recompense. He will come with his rewards for those who lived for him. And I believe that John understood where the ultimate sense of reward is coming from. Right? This is the contrast. Even in Matthew 6, when Jesus is considering the different ways of a life of devotion. And he says, don't be like those hypocrites that go out on the street corners with all their boasting and all their loud voice and all their fancy articulation. Just so that people can hear them. Because that's what they're after. They want people to hear them. Because that's where they've determined their sense of reward is coming from. There's a way to set our life up where we believe that the reward of our life is to be ultimately found in this life. But I believe that John understood my ultimate sense of reward is not in this life. It's not in this life. And so if it's not going to be in this life, I know that there's only one man that can sign off on my destiny. There's only one man that can actually say 
that I lived faithfully. There's only one man that's going to give me that well done. I don't think that John was compromising and entered into doubt. But what I am starting to see is that John wanted to know. Go and ask him. Because if he's the one, then I'll know that it was worth it. If he's the one, then I'll know that it was worth it. I'll know that everything I rejected and refused was worth it. But if he's not the one, have I wasted my life? If he's not the one, have I done things along the way that weren't actually leaning into a reward that was going to come from God. Can you see the tension in John's question? I have to know if he is who he says he is and who I believe he is because if he is, then all of this will have been worth it. If he is who I believe he is, then it's worth it. Man, I remember... A season in my life where I was trying so hard to bring the word of the Lord to pass. Crazy sense of destiny. I remember it got to the point where I would, I would be in particular places and th this had been for quite some time. And, and I didn't even necessarily know that I was doing these things. Right now, this is part of the beautiful thing. Until you know... Maybe you didn't know. And that, that's, that's okay. Because once you know, then you have opportunity to repent and to do something else. But if you know, and you're acting like you don't know, <laughs> now we're in a little bit of a different conversation. But for quite some time, I had a, almost like a refusal to invest myself in a full way in different places that I found myself. Because I knew I had this, this word like hovering over my life. This like promise from God, man, all of these dreams, all of these words, right? All of this, this picture that God was painting, right? Like one day, right? What one day is almost like Neverland, right? One day, this is what God is going to do. One day, right? And the one day vision, if we're not careful, brings a disruption to our faithfulness and our devotion. And this one day vision, it brought a disruption. And I remember for quite some time, I had been unwilling to actually like invest myself in a full way because I would always think to myself, if I give all of me here, am I going to be free enough so that I don't have entanglements that are going to keep me whenever God sweeps through to rescue me and usher me into destiny. And so if I give all of me right here, 
Will I be too bound in this stuff that I won't recognize whenever he's coming to get me? Will there be so many entanglements that are going to keep me or that are going to make me compromise whenever God comes to rescue me out of this life that I actually don't really like, but I'm just pretending that I like it so that God thinks I like it so that we can get on to the next thing because the thing that I really like and the thing that I really want is not where I actually am. And I used to try to like pray things like, God, you know, I love this. <laughs> Thinking that I could like one day pray the right prayer that was finally going to like convince God that he had gotten enough of me in the process that I was in. Lord, you know that I would be faithful if this is what the rest of my life looked like. Really? Would you? We're about to find out. Because what we're going to do is through my mercy, I'm going to give you enough time in what you said you would be faithful in and satisfied by in order to reveal to you how untrue that actually is. In order for you to see that there is other agendas that are alive in your heart that are influencing your obedience to me. And so my grace to you is going to allow you a place and a people and a process that is going to bring these things up on the inside. Because until you know, you don't actually know. And I used to try to get like super crafty in prayer. Like men. I'm going to find the right phrase. Like, man, I'm telling you. Like, I'm going to find the right phrase that is finally going to, like, throw the dart hard enough into the bullseye for God to have to come down and rescue me from ordinary and put me into destiny. And on and on it went. And more and more started coming up. And I remember getting so mad at God that I could not do anything in order to make this happen. I wanted my season to shift. I wanted things to change. I knew that I carried this sense of purpose, but, but I didn't really understand that I was actually in my process that was going to make me what I needed to be in order to fulfill the purpose that God had revealed to me. Um, I, I didn't have an appreciation for the process, and so I wasn't discerning that it was actually God driving me through a place of obedience and maturity. And I thought that if I could just pray the right thing, and I remember getting so mad. And, and I remember telling Anna one time, I was like, you know what? This is going to do it. I figured it out. I'm going to fast. Because, like, fasting is my thing. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, we're about to get it on. I'm going to fast until God comes. I'm going to fast until breakthrough happens. I'm going to fast until this ordinary season shifts. Right? I figured it out. I've tried everything else. I've worked all the gimmicks. I've thrown all the darts. I've prayed all the prayers. Okay, that wasn't it. I'm going to fast. And I remember starting this fast. 
and like from five minutes into the fast, wanting to die. There was zero grace. Right? I, I didn't understand that I, would, that I had become like the screaming little toddler in the corner that thought that through certain behaviors I could get my father's attention and that if I just screamed hard enough and had a temper tantrum long enough that eventually he was going to come and do for me what I wanted him to do for me. I don't do that for my own kids. Like, have you lost your mind? And I remember five minutes into the fast, I'm going to die. Like, I'm going to die but I powered through because we're going to do this thing. I'm one day in, oh, we're getting it on. Like God's coming, I'm telling you. He's going to shift ordinary. I'm not satisfied with ordinary, and I'm done faking it. God, you're, you're going to make it happen. I told you I'd be faithful with this, but you didn't actually come when I thought you would come, so I'm not going to pretend anymore. I don't really like this. As a matter of fact, I hate this. I absolutely hate this, and you're going to have to do something about this, because I've got a dream, and you've given me a word, and your word doesn't fit ordinary, and I'm tired of ordinary, and I'm going to fast until you come and get me. Day two. (laughs) I am dying. Like every ounce of man pride I have is fueling this fast. I know there's no grace, and I'm going for it anyways. Because I'm telling you, I am so disgusted with ordinary, right? Because I'm extraordinary. You know what I mean? Like, like I've got an extraordinary vision. Like, you're going to have to do something about this. Because I'm wasting time. And all of the time that I'm wasting is time that I'm not actually fulfilling the thing that I know you want to do with me. So, like, I'm going to fast so that I can make you aware of how much time we're actually wasting. Right? Now, maybe you wouldn't say it this way. Right? Because you're better than I am. (laughs) Day three. We are in the fast. And towards the end of the day, I'm telling you, I'm on the verge of death. Like, I am angry. I am so hostile on the inside. And I finally came to what was the most humiliating breaking point of my whole journey. And I looked at Anna and I said, I think I'm going to have to stop this fast. And she said, why? And I said, because, well, for one, I'm going to (laughs) die. Because there's no grace in this. And God is not in this. But my own self-righteousness was still going to motor through this thing in order to try and accomplish a work or a desire that I had, even though I knew that it wasn't a same desire that God had. And... uh, Anna, like she so faithfully does, she's like, why don't you just eat? I was like, do you understand, like, what I am actually trying to work out here? Like, if I eat, it is going to be the ultimate sign of defeat. Like if this doesn't work, you don't understand. I have no other tricks in my bag. 
Ay, ay, ay. Maybe you still have some more tricks in your bag. Uh, and that's why you, you can't necessarily relate with, I know it sounds funny, and I think it's super funny now. Oh, it wasn't funny at all right then. And he said, if I give up on this fast, I will have to admit defeat. I will have to admit that I've got absolutely nothing. And maybe you don't understand how devastating this is going to be at the thought that I don't have any power to provoke a different outcome other than the faithful investment into ordinary, which I'm disgusted with right now, as a matter of fact. It was in this season while praying and reminding the Lord that he hadn't sent me out to preach anywhere in a while. Oh, my God, I'm so glad I'm not the person I used to be. I, I wasn't actually praying. I was complaining. But because it was in God's direction, we'll call it praying. About how he hadn't sent me out to preach in a while. And God said to me, I was so offended. I had never felt so slapped in my life. Said to me, when you have something to say, I'll send you somewhere to say it. I was like, man, do you know who I am? Like, have you ever seen me work? You know what I mean? Like, like who do you think you're talking to? Right? Like, this is early 20s. Like, do you, have any, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> right? Y'all are better than me. I get it. It's cool. I, I, it's cool. I'm good. I, I found him there <laughs> at the end of myself. And the Lord said, what you don't understand is I'm not interested in putting you on platforms that you think are important. Because the important platform that I've privileged you to stand on every day is the one before your wife and kids. And until they can amen your life, I'm not sending you anywhere for other people to amen things that they don't actually have a way to know are real or not. It's like, oh, well, that's how you feel. And I remember looking at Anna, and I started crying in my kitchen at the sign of being humbled by God. And I said, I'm, I'm going to eat. And she was like, okay, good, then let's get back on with life. <laughs> and I was so devastated at the thought of feeling powerless to actually make destiny happen for me. At the thought of not bringing anything to the table in a way to help the Lord actually do with me what I thought it was that he was wanting to do with me. And I remember eating a little something, and again, I'm devastated. I'm so humiliated, and I was like, I got to get out of here. And she was like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the gym. And I go to the gym, and I don't even know why I'm there. I don't really want to be there. I don't really want to be anywhere. I want to die. And I'm standing in the gym. I have my earbuds or whatever they were called at that time. And I have dumbbells in my hand. And I'm having this interior conversation with God. And I said, Lord, this is where I am. I hate my life every day. And I hate that I hate it. I hate it. Because I'm, I'm constantly burdened by this tension of things that you've revealed to me. 
And I've realized over a long journey now that I don't actually have any way to make those things happen. And this conversation's happening on the inside. And I said, you know what, now I'm at the gym, right? So nobody else understands what's going on. I'm just standing there with dumbbells in my hand crying. I haven't actually even done anything yet. Right, I'm, I'm just in the gym, dumbbells like b- bawling. People are probably wondering what, what song I'm listening to. You're like, oh, he's one of those chick flick guys. And I said, Lord, this is where I am. I'm tired of investing in what's unseen and shielding my life from everything that is seen, thinking that I'm doing you a favor, thinking that I'm helping you, thinking that I'm keeping myself free enough for you to come and get me. I said, God, this is where, this is where I'm at, and this is what I have to do. I need the joy of my salvation to be restored. Because right now, I'm not living with a real sense of purpose. I'm not living with a real sense of joy. I'm not living with a real sense of confidence or value or satisfaction. And Lord, I need these things. I need these things so I can love my family well. I need these things so I can love my church family well. I need these things so I can be faithful on my job. At the time, I was working construction and doing other things and just trying to manage it all. I was a full-time student in school, and we had a little baby, and we were just doing all kinds of stuff. And I said, Lord, I need joy and value and confidence and purpose. And right now, I don't have these things, and it's devastating. I said, and so I'm tired of trying to invest my efforts into what is, it's, it's unseen, right? It's abstract. And I'm done with that. Because I'm not being faithful with what is seen. Because I have this tension of what's unseen hovering over my life. And I said, God, I'm done. That's where I'm at. And so I don't even really know what done means, but I know that I'm done. I said, like, for real, like, like, I'm done. I was like, I, I'm not saying I'm going back to the world. Right again, this is all, I mean, bawling, like dumbbells. I haven't done anything. I've been in the gym for 20, 30 minutes now. I'm not going back to the world. I can't. I, I don't even know what else I'm supposed to do. But I'm tired of trying to help you and feeling like you are not actually invested in the process or the way that I'm trying to help. I said, so God, this is where I'm at. Let let me tell you where I'm at, right? I'm laying out the terms. You know how to get a hold of me. You know how to get my attention, right? Almost like, like you know where I stay at. Like whenever you're ready to speak to me, whenever you're ready to come and get me, you obviously know how to find me. You've been faithful to do that in seasons prior. So you obviously know. And when you're ready... Let me tell you where I'm going to be. I'm going to be right here, giving everything in what everybody else says is nothing. And in what I, for a long time, have said was nothing. I'm going to be right here, giving an extraordinary effort in what everybody else says is ordinary. I'm going to be right here, loving my wife, loving my family, being faithful on my job. I'm going to be right here with all the behind the scenes tests and all of the different things that are availed to us every day, I'm gonna be right here. 
I'm going to give a big time investment in things that seem small and little and insignificant. And whenever you're ready to come and get me, you know where to find me. But until then, I am done trying to help. And for the first time in a very long time, I heard a small voice that was louder than the music I was listening to that was more impactful than the tears that were streaming down my face. And the voice said, good. I've been waiting for you. I dropped the dumbbells, ran out to my car, and laid in the back seat and wailed. Like died in the presence of God. Because now I knew, before I didn't know. And when you don't know, you don't know. But now I know. And he said, good, I've been waiting for you. What I hear in John's voice is there's only one opinion of what my life looks like that matters. And if he is who he is, then he's the only one that can sign off on the way that my life has been lived. He's the only one that can authorize my obedience. He's the only one that can endorse all of my faithfulness. And if this is where it ends up, then so be it. If this is the conclusion, then so be it. If in this cell, at the end of my life, if this is where the opportunity for offense is going to bring me into compromise, then what has been my joy all along is going to be my joy until the end. And I know that I live near to the bridegroom and I know that it's his voice that constructed my whole life and if he is who he says he is it's worth it I feel like I came to tell you it's worth it it's worth it it's worth it when the world says it's not it's worth it when all of the other conditioning and all of the other agendas say it's not. It's worth it. If he is who he is, it's worth it. And John gives all of himself in the ultimate way. God is going to raise up a people at the end of the age like John. A people that will give themselves to a wilderness way of life. A people who were, which is coming out of the sway of the world, reorienting their lives to Jesus' value system, going big in what everybody else says is small. God is going to raise up a people at the end of the age who have a delight in his son, who love not their own lives even when confronted with death. God is going to raise up a people at the end of the age who aren't feeding on the world, but they have a different diet. And their different diet has actually given them real discernment. And so they know their definition. They know their value. They live with confidence. God is going to raise up a people towards the end of the age that are going to give themselves to family, to spiritual family, 
They are going to be a covenant people. They are going to make disciples and not see the giving of themselves or the investing of themselves into the lives of others as a waste of time if it's not actually benefiting them according to the results that they desire. He's going to raise up a people who have a different idea of what destiny is all about. And these are going to be the wild ones. These are going to be the ones that are free. These are going to be the ones that burn and they're going to be bright. These are going to be the ones that are radiant. They're going to have a glow about them. These are going to be the ones that are powerful and they're powerful because they're glowing and they're powerful because they walk in real freedom and they're powerful because they're not defined by the world and they're powerful because they have a different diet and they're powerful because it's a real way of life that involves others and invests in others and they're powerful because they know where their reward is coming from. And their ultimate sense of reward will not be the material things of this life. But they will know that the investment now is being laid up against a faithful God at the end of the age. And these wild ones are going to ready the earth for the return of the king. John gave his life to set the stage for God to reveal his son. And he was not worried about sharing the stage. Man, sometimes we're like, God, you can use me, but we really want to share the stage with Jesus. We really want to be associated with what he's doing. We want our name to be attached to the move. We want our face to be associated with all of the flyers and the things that people are associating a move of God with. But John said, I must decrease, and he must increase. I'm not worried about sharing the stage, but I'm willing to give my whole life to set a stage for God to reveal his son. I'm willing to give my whole life to set the stage so that the bride can come or the bridegroom can come and possess the bride. I'm willing to live my whole life in faithful obedience, in a consistent investment of ordinary, believing that if there ever be a moment of visibility, it's going to have to be something that God does because I don't want to have power to produce an outcome myself that God is not actually authorizing. And I'll give everything in order for the Father to have a man that understands he's not the light. But that he came to be a witness. That he came to testify. That he came to set a stage. Man, John went out into the wilderness because that's where the fire falls. The fire met Moses in the wilderness. And Moses rises out of the wilderness with a fiery encounter to fulfill his purpose. Elijah rises out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. He rises out of ordinary. And he rises out of ordinary to go show himself and hide himself. Right? If you understand the life of Elijah, you understand. These two phrases mark his life. Go show yourself. Go hide yourself. Go show yourself. Go hide yourself. We must find value and purpose in both statements. 
I know we live in a go show yourself generation, but Elijah's life was marked by go show yourself, go hide yourself. And he rises and he's calling fire down in the middle of the wilderness on the mount. And John rises on fire with a proclamation that ushers in the revealing of God's son. I believe that God is readying a people who will give themselves to a John-type life, as we have been considering, to usher in the second coming of his son. This is where the real fire is found. This is where the real stature is to be gained. This is where it's through the processing. It's through the processing. It's through the consistency. It's through the fight for longevity. It's through the millions of opportunities to jump ship, derail, compromise, check out, satisfy your life with something else, receive a different type of reward. It's through the million opportunities to say, no, you are enough. And I will keep giving you everything in this direction. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.